Okay, good morning. Nice to see you. Let me launch the PowerPoint. This you don't have. I made it yesterday. And uh, Christy wouldn't have been able to print what I didn't get her yesterday because I just made it yesterday. This is a summary of what we did last time I taught. And thinking about it yesterday, I thought, you know, that was so significant, it needs a slide. And um, it'll help us. So what we're going to look at here is, I don't know if it's a, a valid inclusio, but it's, it's significant. The beginning of 1 Timothy talks about a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And then now in 2 Timothy, it's talking about those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's the brackets. Because it's kind of unusual terminology, which we'll see. And I can't help but think it's uh, significant in regard to the definition of the church and who is attached to the head and who's a part of it. So that's, we'll start with that. This is a summary. And then we'll get to, I think, verse 24 we were on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your love. We pray for those that are hurting. Pray for Jessica for her healing and restoration. Pray for so many others that are having difficulties and need prayer. And Lord, may we always love you, our head, our Lord, our Savior, and one another, your dear children, our brothers and sisters, who we serve you together with. Help us, Lord, and understand that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we are in uh, chapter, well, this is actually chapter two, but I'm going to do this summary. If you want to, here's, it's not on your paper. I apologize. That's all my fault because I didn't do this till yesterday. But we did cover this. But 1 Timothy 1 5 is very important, where Paul says, but the goal of our instruction is. Church growth. <laughs> no, it didn't say that. Sorry. Let's, let's, let's try it again. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, when I taught on this a few months ago in... in uh, First Timothy, when I covered some material that I think are help, that helps us define the church, I pointed out that this is very significant. If this is the goal of the apostolic instruction taught by Paul to Timothy, who is a, a elder and leader in Ephesus, which is where Paul is addressing in Acts 20 the elders of the Ephesian church, from which we're getting significant material about the biblical definition of the church, this is something that should weigh heavily on every Christian teacher and leader. This should be definitive. Because Paul isn't saying that because it's just some quirk that he has that most everybody wouldn't. This goal of instruction of love from a pure heart and a good conscience, sincere faith, 
is by the very nature of the uh, attributes and, that he d talks about here, something that's central to biblical Christianity, to the work of the Spirit, to the fruit of the gospel. This has to be that way. And uh, then when Paul personally instructs Timothy much later, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with, now who does he pursue these things with? Believers, the church, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So now we learn this, this pure heart, pure heart, that that is something that is, is an essential aspect of what a Christian is by God's work of grace. And the only way that is true for anyone is that God himself made us pure because we can't do that by trying harder. So let's look at some cross-references. Again, thank you for bearing with me. With me. I didn't think about doing this till yesterday when I was preparing. Yes, uh, Brother Brian. Hold on here. Yeah, now you are. Check. Yeah, you're on. So to have a pure heart, you must be born again. Right. Because if you're in the realm of the evil one, you either are or you aren't. So right. there's nobody that has a pure heart as much as the liberals would like to think that they do. That's, you have to be saved. Yeah, you have to be born of God, converted, part of, the, of Christ's body. All of that has to be true. And I can show you that from a few other texts. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Titus 1.15. Titus 1.15. See, I think when you, when you really drill down on the biblical definition of the body of Christ, the church, what is important and true and real, you come to the conclusion that almost all of church history is about something else. And I would say that something else is institutions, building institutions that will self-perpetuate no matter what. And the better they are self-perpetuating, the better they survive even when they're totally apostate. Now let's look at Titus 1.15. If you've turned to that, I'll read it to you. Titus 1.15, again, written by Paul, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Titus 1.15. So when you look at Titus 1.15 and compare it to 1 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 2.22, in statements, not just some Strong's Concordance proof text that pull out of the air, but definitive statements that are core by their very nature to who we are and to what Christian teaching is supposed to be doing. If the goal of the apostolic instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, we can't say, oh, that's just one thing. There's all these other things we should be about. How could you do that? It's too essential. Okay? And then, again, 
Titus says, so all, the pure, all things are pure. The point is this. Well, in that context, you can't just legalistically declare people pure because you pass the test of the religious authorities that say they didn't think Jesus was pure. Okay? This is something God does. If you're defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure. You can be defiled and unbelieving and be the nicest person in the whole world. You can be kind. You can, you can start a, a charity. You can give food to the poor. You can start a clothing thing. You can start of ethical treatment of animals. And look at all the charities out there. But you don't have to have love from a pure heart and a good conscience to do all those things, to try to make a world a little better place to live in. I'm not saying it's wrong to be charitable to all, to show kindness to all. But I'm saying that this is only something God can do, and God does do. And so if you are still defiled because you're not cleansed by the blood of Jesus and still unbelieving even though you have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. There's no way any of this is true. So this is the sine qua non without which not of what the church is like. And once God redeems someone and cleanses them and makes them pure and undefiled, they're part of the church whether we wish to acknowledge it or not because there were conflicts in Acts, as, which is what we're technically studying, where when God saved somebody, well, case in point, Saul of Tarsus. God had to tell Ananias, this guy's okay, he's one of ours. Because he wasn't about to have this guy who wanted him dead, breathing out threats of slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. And so, this is a work of God, and when if God receives somebody and cleanses them, they're part of the family. And we need to learn how to care, to love, to teach, and so on. And that's what the church looks like. The uh, offices, if you want to call them that, are simply elders and deacons, not some hierarchy. So that's Titus 1.15. Now here's a statement I wrote in my notes. Those who are not born of God and thus saints. What's a saint? Sanctified one is the Greek. The sanctified ones are, are those who are not born of God and thus saints. So in other words, they're not saints. Are not and cannot be pure in this manner. This reality is typically lost on the institutional church which seeks its preservation and growth through the means institutions are preserved despite Christian-sounding verbiage. Let me give you an example of just how badly this is in our Christianized American society. Have you seen the various TV ads, very expensive ones for charitable things? And they come out around Christmas big time. Uh, I saw one, they have a dog sitting there crying with a log chain. Uh, you don't need a log chain for a dog. Log chains are not cheap. But the point is, they, they're training people to feel badly and give money. Now let's say the ad costs 
$3 million, and they bring in $3.1 million. It's worth it because they're growing their institution. But the $3 million didn't help any doggies. It just helped the bottom line of the broadcasting and then the hierarchy of the institution. And I'm, just, I'm not just picking on that particular one. There's thousands. Some of them have turned out to be total scams, as we've seen recently. Okay? But Americans are good at having societies. That all started in the 19th century. But the point is this. The institution thinks 3 million, but we got 3.1 million back. Let's do it. Because we have a net plus. No thought about the people's money. They didn't know that they were spending all this money mostly to buy advertising time. And they felt sorry for whatever it is that it's about. But the body of Christ isn't like that. The body of Christ is, is personal. It's relational. It's grounded in faith and love and a sincere conscience. And it's hands-on right here, right with each other. All the alalus in, in the Greek in the Bible means one another's. And we wouldn't think that it's a good deal to spend $3 because we get a bottom line that went up a smidge. Because we would think, no, we won't want the body of Christ's resources to be spent in that way. But it means they don't care if they're an institution because the institution got better. Eric, our meeting with that has been revolutionary for, for me because it helped me understand it. The institution has to get better, even if it means the head of theology is an atheist. Because we got more students now than we did before, so the bottom line work. You think the Board of Regents are going to care? No. They're there to make the institution grow. So beware of that sort of thing. Now, um, the word here, pure, katharos, is an adjective. It's used four times in 1 and 2. Timothy, and here's another key passage. Jot this down or turn to it. Hebrews 10, 22. This is another passage that will just lay this out as bottom line about what the church looks like and what it is to be a member. And I say all this as you're looking for uh, Hebrews 10.22. Let me also say this. This doesn't mean that we, because we're finite, know exactly who it is that uh, is, has a pure heart. Because there, there are people with false assurance who have outwardly Christian lives and only God knows. And we don't have to know that. That's why there's church discipline and the basic things that are important because only the Lord knows those who are his. But we know that in general, this is what those who are his look like. They're not running a con or a scam. They're caring for one another and they love the Lord. Okay, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. There's those word, sincere faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There's the word again. Good conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. There's the word pure. There's probably talking about baptism. But the point is, these are the basic issues that make us different. And what we need to be is different from the world, but not 
uh, not cloistered so that we just throw bombs out at everybody else and we have no outreach or no evangelism or, or no, uh, uh, how would you say, salt and light function in the world. But this is the church. That's what the church is. And only God can do it. And uh, elders will want to do those things which they know God will use because he promised he would to bring conversion, to bring sanctification, and to motivate all of us to show love and kindness and to uh, pursue, uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And only God can purify the heart. Cathar, catharos, catharos. It's like our word catharsis, but it's a, a word for cl- cleansed in, as an adjective. So in both 1 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul addressed next, after laying this out, in both contexts, that's why I see kind of a inclusio type thing here, after what was said here in 1 Timothy 1.5, he goes on to talk about the alternate, which is bad. In 2 Timothy 2.22, he does the same. Here's what we do want, and then the next section says what we don't want. So let me read what we don't want from 1 Timothy uh, 1, 6 and 7, if you want to turn there. Here's what we don't want. Okay, 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. For some men straying from these things, what things? Pure heart, love, and so on. Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So then the fruitless discussion is where things go because of a lack of focus on pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And oh, the fruitless discussion, that's such a favorite topic. And uh, in the case of Jesus during the, during the, in the Gospels and the, the Apostles in Acts, there was so much fruitless discussion about what's what kind of food is pure, uh, uh, how Paul conducted himself. And and they had that first uh, Jerusalem council and and the various things that happened. And the same thing was going on. So the danger is fruitless discussion that doesn't make anyone pure. And, And what we really need to do is biblical binding and loosing. What is permitted and not a sin and what is forbidden. And within what's permitted, Christians can be told different and nobody is sinning in their differences. Because, and we talk, that's what I've been talking about in 1 Corinthians. Some things you can't do, like have table fellowship with the demons in the pagan temple. We decided that was bad. We want to fellowship with Christians and the Holy Spirit, not with the demons. All right, so... Let me show you that. Now we go to 23, 24. We already covered 23. But notice I just read to you 
verses 6 and 7, fruitless discussions, followed the idea of purity in 1 Timothy 1, 5. Now following the idea of purity in 2 Timothy 2, 22, we have 23, 24. Let's read that. Here's the slide. You have this one on your handout. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. There's the same thing that came up before. Knowing they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Now, we did verse 23 last time, but um, I have some uh, material on verse 24. I think I shared the story of how these, verse 24 through 26, in the early 80s, totally changed my life when I saw the when I saw them, I realized that most of what I'd been doing in the 70s was fruitless. And, and uh, I, I can't even remember the context that I ran into 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, just studying along. I thought, oh my, this is the opposite of everything I did. You know, the inner healing and the casting out the demons and the battles with Oh, boy. <laughs> and I thought, well, gentle and patient is not what we were doing. <laughs> Several counselors sitting on somebody writhing. Come out, you foul spirit. Come out. <laughs> ah, no, I won't. <laughs> Sit down. I'm, well, it's not exactly gently teaching. <laughs> and that was therapy in the 70s. I, some of you may have been... I, we got away from that. He realized only God delivers people, and he does so through means not by uh, using deliverance as a therapy for Christians. Anyhow, that's aside the point. Notice, though, following the, what is prescribed is what the church looks like is what it's not, and that is foolish and ignorant speculations and quarrels. Not quarrelsome. And there's so many things in the world we can quarrel about. And uh, really, to simplify it, and Eric's been talking about this, and I've been talking about it, to simplify it, you go down to binding and loosing. Okay? If something is not a sin, and uh, it, we're not bound, then we're free, but we still use wisdom and love. If, if, if something is a sin, we're seeing an example of that in 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and then in chapter 10, then you've got to address it strongly, which is what Paul does. So there's other matters that can certainly take up all of our time, but it won't help us have love from a pure heart and so on. So that's the point. Yes, Pastor uh, I'll just bring us back to that first uh, Timothy passage you had up earlier about love and a, a pure conscience. I, oh, I'm sorry, it was actually a good conscience. The conscience is that inner referee within us that def determines what's good or bad. And it kind of regulates. It says, hey, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something right. Well, that conscience is not infallible. It has to be informed by something outside of itself. Yeah. So what Bob is pointing out is that when we do correct binding and loosing, then our conscience is informed by the scriptures under the new covenant, not by anything else. So today, the conscience of the person who recycles 
but murders the unborn, they feel great about themselves. Why? Because their conscience is defiled. Good point. But your conscience is informed by Scripture, therefore recycling whatever, <laughs> but save babies, oh yeah. Why? Because your conscience is informed by the Scriptures. And what's interesting, I'll be talking about this today later in the sermon, is okay. if you keep going in that First Timothy 1.8, Paul talks about those who try to teach the law. Right. And it's actually the Mosaic law he's referring to, of course, well, that, as you'll unpack that, the law of Moses isn't the standard. 1 Timothy 1.11, the gospel is, which is really a synecdoche, a, a summary for the new covenant. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is the teaching that should inform your conscience? It's not the Mosaic law. You're not sinning if you don't build a city of refuge. You're not sinning if you don't do circumcision. But you are sinning if you don't, as Bob is pointing out, love from a pure heart, both God and neighbor. Yeah. Uh, so the New Testament, the new covenant is what has to inform our conscience. If we go to back to the old covenant, we're going to have a defiled conscience. If we go back to some man-made law, we're going to have a defiled conscience. It's the terms of the new covenant, just as Bob is saying, the binding and loosing has to come from the new covenant. Absolutely right. Thank you, Pastor Eric. I have just spent, I don't know how long, reading every scholarly thing I have my hands on, on the Great Commission in Matthew, because I'm going to write an article where somebody has this whole book based on the Great Commission that they get totally wrong and they don't have one iota of exegesis. So I may write a scholarly exegesis of the Great Commission before I write about this guy's book. He can't do, he can't write a worldview book and do zero exegesis. And the assumption is that philosophy for telling us what a Christian worldview is, is sufficient. We don't need exegesis for it. I'll tell you the point. They're saying discipling nations. They take nations to be cultures and geopolitical entities. And so then they never do one lick of exegesis on Matthew 28. And so I'm going to do it for them. And having done that, and I have so much stuff, I wish I would have started with more pages of the Greek. It's so dense. But Eric's absolutely right. Teaching them to observe philosophy, global warming. No, whatsoever I've commanded you. So the Great Commission... First of all, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the teaching is grounded in Jesus being the one who has spoken fully and finally for God. That's in, in, in the great resources that I have are all saying the same thing with what Eric just said. So Jesus teachings are binding on the church because he's the head of the church. We've got people on one side saying hyper-dispensationalism, Jesus' teachings are not binding on the church because that's for somebody else, just the Jews. And then we got the liberals who are saying that Jesus' teaching can't be known in detail, but we know what we're supposed to be loving. And loving means abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, you, you name whatever their things are. And you end up with both people clear on one side ignoring the teachings of Jesus and 
the others ignoring the teachings of Jesus, and they create their own Great Commission. And I would just, I would totally agree, Eric. We've got to see that this instruction comes from Christ and his apostles, not the culture. We've got our pet peeves about the culture. Well, then beware, decide, whatever. But uh, the culture wants you to feel guilty about emitting carbon dioxide. You wicked sinner. Yeah, but you can't repent of it. It's impossible to repent of emitting carbon dioxide. And so that's kind of how it always goes. I noticed that in seminary. That's what I told my advisor. They're just always consciousness raising. I go to chapel when I come out. I'm supposed to feel guilty about something I can't change. I live in the wrong town or I'm the wrong color. I can't change any of this. Or I don't feel bad about what they want me to feel bad about. That's not the church. This is the church. The speculations are all these other things. And dear ones, those speculations can totally overwhelm an entire educational institution. Where that's all that's left is the speculations and laws that aren't given by God. You use the wrong pronoun, you get an F on your paper. That's how it goes. And that was in the easy days when it was just male and female. Now it's impossible with the pronouns because there's too many of them. Go ahead. Yeah, I, it's amazing what you two guys are saying, and, and it's so true, is that even witnessing 20 years ago, you bring up the Bible, you bring up the Word of God, you bring up Jesus Christ, and immediately people recognize that as authority. The Word of God is authority, the Ten Commandments. And they know what you're talking about as far as this is right and everything else is wrong. But in today's society, they don't see that. As you were saying, it's a brand new righteousness. So, in other words, they don't even know which way is up anymore. As a society, we don't know yeah, which way is up, I know. or they don't know which way is up. So righteousness is not the Word of God. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the Bible. It's your carbon emissions or saving planet Earth or LGBTQT. I mean, it's a radically shift in righteousness in our society. Right. So and that, we can't count on the pagan world to give us a Christian worldview. And that's why I'm debating against this book, and it has people in there that I admire, like Francis Schaeffer. They cite him on different topics than I cited him. I cite about the validity of rationality and reason. But when it comes to eschatology, they got a whole different world. We're going to have a Christian culture and a Christian worldview, and it's going to get better that way so that humans will prosper and, uh, on the earth. And they, they make statements in there that are utterly absurd, like human beings have dominion over time. That's one that I found in there. It's on page 47, I believe. It's, or 147. I, I, it's all marked up. It's like, how can you say you have a Christian worldview and you directly refute what it says in Isaiah? I, Yahweh, have declared the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And you say human beings have dominion over time? It's absurd. And this is from people that are citing folks that I've heard and respect. But I say... Eschatology matters as much as anything else. And don't let people lead you astray by saying eschatology doesn't matter. It does. Because your hermeneutic for what the Lord says about the times 
that are uh, in what the church age is, who the church is, what the Great Commission is. They can't agree on the Great Commission. So how do I get in unity with people wanting a Christian worldview? We have zero in common about what the Great Commission is. And theirs has no exegetical validity and they can never defend it. If they got into a debate, they'd get the floor mopped with them. Well, it's like what you're running into. Which you spoke last week, Eric. Uh, is Is the church an enemy of the church or the gospel? But they no, it's, it's Israel in her darkened state, it is. So, again, I was in a debate. I brought that up. They just go, oh, go to something else. It matters. It matters. What God said in his word matters. Not one thing will pass away until all things are fulfilled. And if you can't defend it, it's probably pretty weak. And you might want to think twice. Okay, we're, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We're not here to beat somebody over the head. We're here to gently and carefully teach the truth. Uh, must not be quarrelsome. I think the King James has pugnacious. Pugnacious. And I, so I had to look that one up. Uh, it's basically you just as soon punch somebody in the nose as talk to them. It means ready and willing to fight. Well, it takes the work of grace to not be that way. But it basically means being a bully. And it's used in Titus 1.7. The word um, is plaktes, which is pugnacious or quarrelsome here. Titus 1.7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain. And so um, there's a powerful thing about gently and patiently teaching the truth when there's opposition to it. It's a very powerful thing to just gently and carefully lay out the truth. No, here's what the truth is. And... um, uh, that's not going to hurt somebody. It can only help them. And Eric, thank you. That, that lecture last week was so good on that. Just here's what it is. So he goes on there on the eschatology and lays out facts. And you get all these people that have massive followings and they just go, oh, well, I, they have no answer. And I, it's, why would you claim to be an expert and get into the arena of public debate and when it comes down to the key issue you don't have an answer something's seriously wrong here's why because you don't care what the text says you just care what feels right to you okay the lord's servant do loss is a servant a bond servant it's a general statement about christian leaders paul calls himself a do loss bond slave titus 1 1 paul a bond servant of god an apostle of jesus christ for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So the, um, the, the able to teach part here uh, comes up also in 1 Timothy 3, 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one white, wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. 
So I wanted to do a quote from Yarbrough on that. I see in my notes. Uh, 24. Here's a couple things on these passages. Dr. Yarborough, great commentary, by the way, on 2 Timothy. Admittedly, there's tension in this matter. At the same time, Timothy should stay out of certain kinds of conflicts in some and perhaps most situations. He should fight the good fight of the faith, 1 Timothy 6.12. Publicly rebuke elders who are sinning, 1 Timothy 5.20. Guard the good deposit of the faith, 1, 2 Timothy 1.14. Suffer like a military combatant, 2 Timothy 2.3. Perform other proactive, if not aggressive, functions. <clears throat> and so he says the key is foolish and stupid. You can't assume that everything is going to be nice and calm and wonderful and anything other than that is bad. It doesn't work that way. Let me tell you something that all of us Minnesotans need to hear. Nice is doesn't discern anything. Do I need to say it again? I, have you seen nice publicly stating things that are so utterly wicked it takes your breath away? Nice, 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 nice. Murder, mayhem, babies being killed, all this stuff going on, but we're nice. <laughs> Dear ones, Dr. Arbro's right. Nice isn't exactly the point. The point is um, to be forthright and strong in the truth and to withstand error, but not to be overcome with such a hostile attitude where you're just trying to win the argument by intimidating somebody else so they just shut up. Yelling, screaming, swearing, and being willing to force everybody to just back down. That's the point. So not substituting being nice for discernment. So we need to be strong and ready to fight, but wise about what fights to get into. When scripture alone is the ground of my statement of Christian teaching, we gauge in exegesis, not speculation. Always do the exegetical work. Always do the work. Do the work. Get in the text. Do the work. Look up the text. See what it says. Look up the words, the cross-references. Look at the context. Make sure your exegetical work is rock solid. And always do that much. And that will make all the difference in the world. And the sad thing about theology in the institution, institutional church, is that theology is seen as a subset of philosophy. And many of the theological books that I read are about philosophy. And the philosophy leads all kinds of different places, depending on the inclination of the philosopher. But on the other hand, yes, have a biblical worldview, but if that world that worldview is only as good as the exegesis, that it's grounded in. 
So I'd say a biblical worldview is, as affirmed in this book I'm going to write about, that God created the whole universe out of nothing. Absolutely. But be able to defend it from Scripture. And then everything else that you come along with, also defend it from Scripture. Saying man has dominion over time, you can't defend out of Scripture. But then once you get the, oh yeah, see this guy's got a biblical worldview and he shows what's wrong with the Buddhists and the animists and the materialists, and so I should listen to him, he quotes the right people, but there's no exegesis, zero. Showing lack of concern for the Scripture. That's where it fails. Bob. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Man does not have dominion over time. I think the Rolling Stones prove that. (laughs) They used to have a song called Time is on My Side. But now you should see photographs of Mick Jagger. He looks like death warmed over. Yeah, but he's still kicking. (laughs) Well, that's true. I know. (laughs) Well, the point is, yeah, good point. It's the wrong reference. Set, up, set there. Um, solid ground to patiently teach. So, whoever might hear this, whoever would be a, for all of us, always go to the scripture and be so well grounded in it. You know the issues, be solid in that. Then, also, the good thing about exegesis, you have a, a system where you can be corrected. If somebody has a better reading, and you see that it's a better reading, you can change without having this whole institutional thing sitting there keeping you from changing. You can change your view if somebody has a better reading of all the significant texts. That's why we search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Because the author, Holy Spirit-inspired author, isn't false. But we may not have the best reading, so that's what we work on. Next. Yay, we got to another slide. There's hope. 2 Timothy 2.25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that that verse right there is what's in the early 1980s just struck me right between the eyes, just bam. And I think I, ha- I had the King James back then. And um, I think it has those who oppose themselves. Now, the reason for the different translations is that this is, uh, could be translated as a middle in the Greek. So it says that they're either opposing themselves or in opposition. And you may see that in different uh, translations. And I, and at the time, we were applying this to using deliverance from demons in order to get people better as far as their mental state of mind or the, what was going on in their lives. And so there were people that were their own worst enemies, so to speak, and we were thinking that um, if you somehow identified why and maybe it was a curse or maybe it was a demon or maybe somebody needed a word of knowledge about what curse was on the person. You go through all this stuff. And then when I read this, I thought, well, wait a second. There's nothing gentle about that. And it's not helping people. 
the same people continue to have the same problems. Maybe what I should do is teach the Bible and look for God to grant repentance. The, the best answer is the obvious one, okay? With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. They may be op opposing the church. They may be opposing other people. They may be opposing the gospel. Or maybe the middle is the case where they're their own worst enemy and self-destructing. So gentleness is... Uh, it means not seeking revenge when wrong, as we saw in verse 24. When we are standing solidly on the truth, we do not need to be loud, intimidating, or pugnacious. The more we are convinced, now this is Paul instructing Timothy in Ephesus, which is what we're talking about in Acts 20, those the elders, the leaders, need to be so grounded in their own personal study of Scripture that they don't feel insecure when challenged. That we know we can defend our position, and if somebody has a better reading, we can be corrected by it. Because there's nothing at stake that's going to upset the apple cart. Because the truth is still the truth. Uh, Jesus said that in, in uh, excuse me, in John chapter 8. The truth sets us free. So we don't have to intimidate anybody. We don't have to bully anybody. We don't have to prove we're right. We just need to gently look for the truth. Rather than speculation on word fights, this is my, in my slide, gently correct those who oppose the truth. The reason, the next point, for patient instruction is the hope God grants repentance. Now there and again, that was another thing that it took a few more years because I accepted this verse as marching orders. Start teaching the Bible and quit shouting at people. Not that I never shouted at anybody. Especially uh, well, never mind. <laughs> problem people out in front of that old building down there that were painting on the side of our building and stuff like that. Um, but nevertheless, the next thing, and this was really hard, even harder, to acknowledge that God actually grants repentance. It's not something conjured up inside the person. That God has means, the means of teaching is the means he uses to grant repentance. Now, that was really hard. That took years because I kept seeing it everywhere and it wouldn't go away. But the theology that we had believed, much like the one with deliverance and inner healing, this one, we couldn't tolerate that. You can't tolerate the idea God grants repentance. And then I saw Saul of Tarsus' conversion acts preached on last week. It's not exactly like Paul went home and thought about it. Yeah, you know, I think these Christians probably got something going for them. No, he wanted, he was breathing out threats of slaughter and hostility. It was God that granted it. And then let me do some cross references for you. Um, Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. God may grant repentance. 
grant, by the way, is just simply the word ditto me, which is give, something God gives in aorist active subjunctive. It might happen. It happens at a point of time. And um, God grants repentance in the face of hostility inspired by Satan. God does it. He does it through the means of the message preached, not through word fights, not through bullying, not through being pugnacious, but through the means of the truth. Teach it and trust God to use it. Grant ditto me, heirs active subjunctive. And um, so the hope for, another thing is, is the hope for, hoped for outcome. It is with God to grant such repentance in the face of such tension, hostility inspired by Satan. Acts 5.31. Here is a, a message, I believe, by Peter. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To grant repentance to Israel. Grant here is to give. Now we know that Israel has not yet repented. Individual persons have, as had already happened. Peter was someone as part of Israel who had repented, but it was yet future. But as far as ethnic national Israel, that's yet future. Acts 11, 18. Acts 11, 18, I'll read it to you. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's in Acts eleven eighteen, Because the question was, we heard, you Jew, Peter, we heard, we heard what you did. You went and had table fellowship with unclean Gentiles. He had. Was it because he wanted to? Remember the vision came down? No, I would never touch anything in, in Acts chapter 10. The sheets come down. Oh, no, no, I'm, be it far from me. I'm pure. There's no way I would eat that kind of stuff. And uh, then he ended up and was told what to do. And God granted repentance to Gentiles. See, that's what I mean by being uh, hunger, being open to having be corrected from Scripture, from the truth. And then when you start searching the scripture, which Peter had already preached from Isaiah, God intended to save Gentiles. He said so in Isaiah. Now, um, looking at this in a bigger sphere, then, God may grant repentance. Well, then, in my story, I finally realized this is God's work. If I, well, my job is to be faithful, preaching the gospel, and calling for repentance. You command repentance knowing God is the one who grants it. Now, um, correcting uh, those in opposition, correcting paiduo is a, a rare word, which is the opposite of the word used in 23, apaidutas, uninstructed, the uninstructed. And both uh, have as the root child instruction. The instruction of a child. So how do you teach a child in ordinary things like language or how you share with your brothers and sisters? 
you patiently teach. No, you can't do it that way. It has to be this way. That's what that word means, correcting, like, like children. No, wait a second. No, this, is, this isn't going to work out for you. And here's why. You are knocking your head against a wall. You're in rebellion. And until you come to God and have forgiveness of sins, you'll never have hope, joy, peace, or any of the things of eternal life, literally forgiveness of sins, which is mentioned many times here in these texts. To, and so the Bauer, Danker, Art, Gindrich say to provide instruction for, for informed and responsible living, to educate. So our education is grounded in the scriptures and the basics of the Christian faith. Because knowing the truth is where we find freedom and we find hope. And we're not building an institution that has to absorb anybody and everybody and anything and everything, but we're part of the family of God that cares for one another and patiently helps each other learn and grow. And said, well, maybe this isn't the best way to do it. Here is what would be biblical. Now, what is the fruit of repentance? What is the fruit of the repentance? We see that also in this verse. Grant repentance. What happens when God grants repentance? Ditto me, gives. Leading to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> wow. This is certainly personal to me because I was as hostile as anybody against the gospel when I was a junior at Iowa State University. I was utterly hostile. And I even knew that God had created the world out of nothing. I learned that from studying organic chemistry and the complexities of what made life possible. And I remember the moment, I've shared this many times, in March of 1970, I said, um, no, that was 71, I think. I was a sophomore. I said, in my mind, big lecture hall, 300 students, the big professor comes in, the TAs and the other ones teach the classes. This is the big guy. He puts the thing on the board, and he said, if any of these carbon bonds, it was a heme molecule, and these car carbon bonds were different, if carbon didn't bond to itself in various ways the way it does, all life would cease and life would be impossible. There never would be life. This is the ground of biochemistry and organic chemistry. And there I sat, in my mind, said, God created us. This is not time plus chance. Three months later, I was hostile to the gospel. Three months and one day later, I was saved. Amen. <laughs> so... I'm not saying I'm opposed to the Christian worldview, but we don't get to the specifics. It's not enough. I had a Christian worldview, and I was still hostile. Um, opposition. On, oh, this is a bunch of prefixes here. Anti, dia, tithemi. There's, there's three, two prefixes, and then the word tithemi. Anti, dia, anti is against, or in place of dia is through, tithemi. It basically means to stand. So what is this opposition, this anti-diatithemy? Clear word study dictionary, New Testament says, um, to place oneself over against or to oppose oneself, to be adverse 
He was part of a noun, as a noun in 2 Timothy 2.25, that's our verse, meaning either those who directly oppose the gospel or those who are ill-disposed toward or unaffected by it. So you place yourself standing through and against. And so it's kind of a rare word. And, but yet its meaning is clear enough. So as we have a few minutes, we looked at quite a bit. Somebody, we did Titus 1. Um, somebody look up 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. And read it for us. Do you have it, Eric? I'll read it here. Second Corinthians seven ten says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly worldly grief produces death." Yeah, so it leads to salvation without regret. I can't even think about that without thinking about Jesus in John chapter eight. It's so amazing where. He said, if you, continue my, if you continue my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they said, here's our institutional pride. We are Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage. Said, so you're offending us by telling us we need to be free because we are free by definition. Now, that was in John 8, sorry, verse around verse 32. So then they have a debate. In the end, they want Jesus dead. And when Jesus said, if you, if you continue, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus Christ sets free. He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from the wrath of God. He delivers us from being deceived, deluded, alienated from the truth, going our own way, doing our own thing, and heading in a lot of bad places, ultimately eternal death, but receiving the knowledge of the truth and being willing to be, by God's grace, a disciple and have a love for the truth is life-changing because that love for the truth will keep you in good stead from the moment you have it. If you keep going back to it, I've had to keep going back to it, to the end of your days or till the Lord comes for you. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus being the truth, he can't say, no, I don't love the truth, but I love Jesus. It's a big lie. And so that's where that went. Dr. Yarborough says, as we have about a minute here, the antidote to wrong-headed disputes can be proactive instruction that anticipates and heads off misunderstanding or distortion of Christian teaching. Pastors who neglect their calling to ambitious study and effective instruction may be creating their own enemies by their malpractice, unquote. And I don't know that how you can say it better. Pastoral malpractice is a failure to engage in the ambitious study to do the exegetical work before you preach the passages and to make that a lifetime habit 
because eventually whatever else happens, God will change you. And will change our hearts and soften us up and give us a tenderness toward people that that's not something that comes natural for me. I honestly think people should just get their act together and do it right. <laughs> Which we all should. But after getting beat up and failed enough times and think, coming through problems you can't possibly solve, eventually you realize God is merciful and gracious to sinners of whom I am chief. But God is a kind and merciful God. So there, let me see what I have next. One more verse. We'll talk about next week getting delivered from the snare of Satan. And that's also not technology, it's relational. Here, let me go to it. Sorry. I teased you and then took it away. They come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what struck me in 1983 or whatever year that was. Man, having four counselors sitting on somebody screaming, come out, you false spirit, by the blood of Jesus. Ah, no, no, not the blood. No, come out, come out. Uh, it didn't, we were trying to do something like that, but it wasn't what, it wasn't totally ineffective. It didn't change anybody. This, you had the 70s, you had to have been there. <laughs> if you weren't, you're blessed. But anyhow, the point is we went to teaching and that has a better outcome than this sort of a hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the body of Christ, the love that you've given in the hearts of each one of your own for each other, but more importantly for you. And we see each other as your dear children. Give us wisdom and understanding and be with Pastor Eric as he teaches us from Matthew. Thank you, Lord. And we do thank you that we today we have a fellowship meal. And uh, we love you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.